thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we're now in chapter 34. A very uh, heavy chapter, uh, one of a few heavy chapters we're going to hit in this book. So if you have script your uh, um, Bible with you, please uh, turn then to chapter 34 and read. Uh, let's read it uh, together. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humbled her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the maiden and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this maiden for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina. But his sons were with his cattle in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry, because he had wrought folly in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you, give her to me. Give her to him in marriage. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her, father, to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask of me ever so much as marriage present and, uh, as marriage present and gift and I will give according as you say to me. Only give me the maiden to, to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are, and that you will become, and every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honor of all his family, so Hamor and his son Shechem came 
to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their cattle, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of, of his city hearkened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of, this, of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came upon the city unawares and killed all the males. They slew Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds, their asses, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their title, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? So this chapter is clearly divided into three parts. The first part is the rape of Dina by Shechem, the son of Hamor. The second part is the entreaty of Hamor, the father, with, the, with Jacob and his sons. And the third one is the trap in which um, the people of Hamor actually fall, the trap that is laid out by Simeon and Levi. This account here is very similar to another account that you may have read or know of, and it's called the Siege of Troy, where you have exactly the same process. Paris goes over and then steals one of their girls and takes, it back, takes her back home, and they get really incensed, and they go over and through a, um, a subterfuge. They're able to enter the city, and when they do, they kill everybody and plunder it and take everybody hostage. Same process, same mechanism, same structure, uh, particularly because it is something that must have happened quite often. And we're going to try to understand today, in light of the gospel, what this means. This is here for a very specific reason. One thing I'd like to address up front is the fact that nothing is said about Dina. Not a word. What she felt, what she thought, nothing. And is it because... Uh, scripture is cold? Is it because Scripture does not care? Not at all. This is a hint to all of us to understand the perspective that we must keep when we're reading this text. That's very important. This is Scripture telling us how God deals with us. Right? So much is left out. If you recall, when Abraham had to take his son and offer him as a sacrifice... Not a word is said about how Abraham felt during those three days. Neither about Isaac. Nothing is said about the interior reality of how they're living the events. Not because it's not important. Simply because it isn't the focus. 
keep that in mind as we progress, because otherwise you're going to be wondering, well, why, why is it that they don't say anything? Because this is not a novel. This is a mirror. It's telling us something very important about the way God deals with us, and obviously the way we deal with each other. First, um, verse 1, there is something rather really important because in the English and based on our own culture, it sounds so innocent. Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Why are we reminded that Dina is the daughter of Leah? By the way, remember when we were looking at the genealogy of Jacob, we've been told about all the sons and then Dina. The only girl. That's a device that is used consistently in Scripture, particularly in Genesis, to give us a heads up. Right? This is important. It's going to come up later. So don't lose track. Don't lose sight of this. So Dina is the daughter of Leah. Who are the two men who go into the city and kill everyone? Simeon and Levi. Who is their mother? Leah. See, you have some homework to do. As we progress to Genesis, you ought to spend some time at home if you're not taking notes, especially if you're not taking notes. Because if you don't take notes, you'll probably remember about 2% of everything I'm going to say. If that. That's why it's so important that you take this a study. So you have to somehow find a way for you to remember so it, the, 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 the study seeps in your mind. So either get the CDs so you can listen to them, and some of the guys who get the CDs, listen to them three times, every CD, before they really can capture and understand the meaning of what is going on. It takes study, right? and scripture is really worth it. Or take notes and review those notes and learn your family. These are all part of your family. You need to know who's who. Very important as we progress. The more forward we go, the more it is important for you to know who's who. Especially, eventually, when we hit Exodus and when we hit Deuteronomy, it is very important to know who is who, because otherwise it's, it's, the meaning escapes you. It, you're essentially entering a family feud, and you've been invited as a friend of a member of the family, and it's a family reunion. So you go there, and you have no idea what's going on. And suddenly, you see everybody's freezing because one guy has given a glass of lemonade to another guy. And you're, okay, what's going on? And your friend says, oh, wow, that's Jim who's just given a glass of lemonade to Johnny. Yeah? What are you missing? The whole history behind what has happened, right? So don't look like strangers in your own family. You got to know that stuff. It's important. Okay? So Simeon and Levi are the, do- the sons of Leah. Therefore, Dina is their sister by blood. Whereas to the other guys, she's their half-sister. Simeon and Levi go into the city, kill everyone, and, doesn't, and don't touch, they don't touch anything. They don't plunder. The plunder happens by the others. Yeah? That's very important. And we're going to come back and, and look upon this. So you need to be able to get to a point where you can pick up on those things. Right? Because you, can, you know who's who. That's why it's so important. So anyhow, Dina went out to visit the women of the land. That should trip 
something in your mind. A red flag should be raised immediately. You should know trouble is on its way. Right? There is uh, one expression here should evoke something, the women of the land. The other one might not, went out. It sounds innocent enough, but actually it isn't. So, essentially, the root verb of the word that is used here to indicate go out is, um, is a word you would use when you are looking at something with a critical eye. In other words, the author is not very happy that she went out to, the, to see the woman of the land. The best way to express this would be if you were to say to a, to a friend of yours or a relative, my daughter, who's 17, went out to downtown San Diego on a Saturday night. You know very well you don't mean to say she left the house, as in she just got out. She's not inside the house. She's outside. That's not what you mean. You mean much more. That's what's intended here. Dina, notice, <clears throat> did not go to her mother and ask permission. Neither did she go to her father and ask permission. She just went out. And she went out to the daughters of the land. What is indicated here? The indication behind it, to keep things very simple, is that she was scantily clad. She was not dressed appropriately. Do you understand? She, in other words, in other words, there was something that she was looking for. And we're going to get back to that something. Now, she got a lot more than she, what she bargained for. All right? But uh, keep that in mind, that the, the mere fact that Scripture says she went out, right? No discussion with parents, nothing. Not telling anybody, just took off. You come home, your daughter looks at you and takes off. To downtown. Doesn't say a word. Now, not where she's going, who she's going to be with, how long she's going to be there, when she's going to come back, nothing. That's what you have to have in mind here. right? And we'll, get back, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, after we go through the entire text, once at least. And then Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite. Uh, by the way, the son of Hamor, let me just key on this word, Hamor. Hamor, it's the same word, very close to what we would, we would use in, uh, in Lebanese or in other um, uh, Arabic-speaking uh, languages. Hamar. Ass. The son of the ass. Now, um, it might be surprising if you think about it, why he would be called the son of... Why is he called ass? Well, because in ancient cultures, ass had a different connotation than it has right now. Today, there is an expression, um, essentially in among among the uh, Assyrians, where to kill a donkey foal, a donkey's foal means to conclude a covenant. You find that especially in the Marist, in the Mari text, right? To kill a donkey foal is to conclude a covenant. Therefore, in other words, in order f when, when they concluded a covenant outside of Israel, because covenant is not something specific to Israel, it is in all of the ancient cultures. The way they would do it is they would kill a donkey's foal. The young of a donkey. That's what they would do. So therefore, the fact that this name has been ascribed to him must indicate that he was, in a certain sense, the keeper of a covenant. 
All right? Now, if you understand the way the Canaanites and the Phoenicians operated, you'd realize one thing about this particular culture. And there is a book that I recommend you read if you're interested. Um, it's written actually by an American historian and anthropologist. It's called The Phoenicians. Found it on Amazon. It's one of the best book of history I've ever read. Because it is w- written in a very clear style and he synthesizes so many things I've learned in the past and I didn't understand why they happened the way they did. He brings them all together and paint a, a very clear picture of this civilization. The one thing you know about the Phoenicians and the Canaanites in general is that they did not have a king. They essentially had what would be considered today the closest thing to a democratic society. The best representation of this today would not be a country. It would be corporations. Take, for instance, SAIC, which is located here in San Diego. Or take Northrop Grumman. If you go to these corporations, you'll find a lot of people with the title of vice president. There's a whole bunch of them. And it, it's bewildering the first time you wonder why. Why so many people are vice presidents? When you realize that these corporations do uh, have quite a bit of business with the military, and many folks in the military want to talk to a vice president, you would understand why you have so many vice presidents. Likewise, among the Phoenicians, it was a grouping of people who came together, and every year, they, or every year, or every couple of years, they would elect a king who was no king. He was the public-facing, the public figure that had to interact with the Egyptians and the Hittite and all the other kingdoms that required to speak with a king. But they had no king to speak of. These were cultures focused on making money, not focused on building empires. So one reason why they invented the alphabet was because carrying papyri and writing with hieroglyphs on cargoes took too much space from cargo. They wanted to keep track of what they had in a much more compact form. So the alphabet was a compression mechanism for information. It was invented for mercantile purposes. Okay. And by the way, if you read this, you'll find out that 3,000 years ago, the Phoenicians had villas, had bathrooms, had running water. The Egyptians were building tombs. So... That's what you have here. You have someone representing a city, essentially, where that city um, is the, 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 the area of influence of that particular city is about a, a thousand miles square. It's a huge area. And in the city, you have representatives from all the groups who came together. And Hamor is the guy, is the glue, is the public face for all of them. Hence the name. And Shechem happens to be his son. Now, the other thing that we need to keep in mind, this is not the first time that, um, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have had dealings with them. And every single time they have had dealings, we've came this close from having a tragedy. Sarah was kidnapped twice. Right? And in the case of Isaac as well, his wife was almost kidnapped. So these cities have issues, not unlike many of our cities today. 
we cannot infer from the text whether Dina knew that or not. But one thing we can clearly infer is that when they arrived that, Jacob must have explained to them how they were supposed to deal with the city. He must have had laid very clear rules. Why? Because of his very prudent nature. Remember how he dealt with Laban. Remember how he dealt with his brother Esau. How he was very, very careful and methodical. It is impossible for a thoughtful man such as himself, who went close to the city, did not dwell in it, dwell outside of it, not to have told all of his people, especially his children, how to deal with this. She went in the city. Who does she remind us of? That's why I said, as soon as you know she's going into a city, it's a red flag. Who else went to the city and got in a, big, in a heap of trouble? Member of the family. Lot. Remember Lot? Yeah. She goes into the city and she's probably in some sort of a party, the equivalent of a party today, and Shechem sees her and he rapes her. Now, um, there are three verbs that are, th- three verbs that are used here which uh, I'd like to key in on because, again, Scripture tends to be very lapidary, very short and direct to the point not much explanation is given, but much is indicated. Saw her, seized her, laid with her. And laid with her really would be forced himself upon her, really. Right? And then humbled her, which is humiliated her. And the interesting thing is that these three verbs of complete, um, uh, which is of a man acting in a domineering fashion, are then followed by three words, the irony of love. His soul was drawn, he loved, spoke tenderly. This is a guy who is deeply perturbed. This is a guy that has a lot of problems. Not a little bit, a lot. And we want, we, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Right? Before I go any further, I want to ask you a question. Actually, no, I'm going to hold on to a question. I'm going to go further. I'll come back. So, he now decides that he wants her for his wife. Do you think by this he means his only wife? No. Right? No. So don't necessarily assume, uh, don't apply your own grid of understanding of marriage today to them back then. No, he doesn't mean that. He means the wife of the moment. Incidentally, you know today, that the, even today, the only, the only religion that requires monogamy is essentially the Catholic Church, and we can extend it to the Orthodox, but outside of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, and even the Orthodox, actually, it depends which group. Now, what I mean by monogamy, I mean monogamy in time and in space, not just in space. You can't be divorced, right? And you can't have more than one wife at the same time. Outside of this group, anything goes. And we'll come back to that. There's a reason for this. All right. Now, he goes and he speaks to, to his father. And um, the father then, he tells him, actually, get me. Right? Get me. Literally, take for me. Now, it was custom, the custom of the, of the time that if you wanted a uh, maiden in a marriage, you go to your father and your father will ask for you. And that's what he does. He goes and he speaks to Jacob. Now, Jacob completely understood immediately what happened. Information must have come to him somehow. 
He knew what happened. But he kept silent because his sons were in the field. Two reasons. Number one, he did not want their sons to know what was going on before they were in his presence, presumably because he wanted to control the situation. And number two, he didn't want to respond back to this man without having any defense. Two reasons. The interesting thing about Hamor, notice the way he asks. Hamor goes to him and then he says, um, verse 8, Hamor spoke with them saying, he's speaking to the, to the boys, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you, give her to him in marriage. Not a word about what happened. Nothing. Nothing has happened. He's pretending that nothing has happened. And then he says, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Does that, does that raise a red flag? Yes? There should be two reasons why a red flag should be raised in your mind at this point. The first one is the specific words of God in the covenant that he spoke to Abraham. You will not take wives amongst them. So there is immediately an invitation to break the covenant. That's the first flag. The second flag is much further back in time. It was before the flood. What caused the flood? When the sons of men began to marry with the sons, when the, when the sons of God began to marry with the sons of men. If you recall from um, Genesis chapter 6, I think, uh, when, I'm not sure, it's chapter 6, one of those chapters before the flood, when the sons of God began to marry the sons of men, meaning the sons of the covenant, right? the sons of Set, you had Cain, Abel, Cain killed Abel, Set came. And the line of God went through Set. It was essentially the line of the covenant. And these boys born under the line of Set was the, were the sons of God. When the sons of God began to marry the daughters of men, who are what? The daughters of Cain. Then God decreed the, the, the flood. Two reasons. And we'll come back to that again. We'll, we'll, we'll have more to say about it. So there, right there, there should be a problem for them. Now, notice how Levi and Simeon answer. Levi and Simeon's answer is, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. What are they focused on? What are they focused on? They're focused on technicality. They're not focusing on the heart of the covenant. They're focused on technicality. That's what they're doing. No, no, this is not the sons of Seth now anymore. Right? This is the flood, and we went to Noah... Although they are the sons of Set in a sense, but now the covenant has been renewed with Abraham. It's the covenant made with Abraham that is foremost in our mind right now. Right? And going through Abraham to them, they should be able to speak in such a way as to indicate the spiritual level. But what is really focused on is, we're this way, we're that, you're that way. You better be like us. And then, right? But they're not telling them, you must enter into a covenant with our God. And as the sign of the covenant... You must be circum uh, circumcised. They say none of that. All they say is you have to be circumcised. They were already planning to kill them. They were planning to kill them. Indeed. Indeed. But I just want, I'm pointing out something about their own spiritual makeup. Right? These, although they are formally part of the covenant, they really are living outside of the covenant. Because these would not be the words of men who are living the covenant who are look, looking up to the God of Jacob. These men are not acting the way Isaac acted. 
Right? When Rachel was not able to have children, he went and prayed. Right? And God answered him. There's no dialogue with God here. God is conspicuously absent from all of this. As soon as this is said, what happens? What does Shechem do? He, he goes and does it. Right? He goes and does What do you call this behavior? Rash. It's a rashful behavior. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll have to say more about it in a minute. And then they go to the, to, the, to the gate of the city where all the important decisions were made. Because if you have to have a big meeting, back then you didn't have big halls or town halls or conventions. The only area big enough to accommodate everyone was the gate of the city, the area around the gate. That's what they went. And they made the prop- proposal. What was the proposal about? They didn't tell the other guys, my son raped the daughter of that guy over there. And now he really wants it for, her, for his wife. And so please all, go all get circumcised. They came up with another reason. Purely financial. And if you see the intent, when they said, aren't their beasts and their cattle and things become ours? What they mean by this is through intermarriage, they will become ours. So they already understand that if they were to marry our daughters and we marry theirs, they will be integrated into our culture. And that's a key point. It's a key struggle that the people of God are going to face throughout history, and we face today. When God sent His people into Egypt, the intent was for His people to convert the Egyptians. Instead, it was the Egyptians who converted His people. When God sends Catholics in the world, it is for Catholics to convert the world. Instead, today, the world is converting Catholics. It's the same struggle. Hmm? So they know that. They understand it. And, and so they give this reason. And these other guys buy, buy off of it. What are driven by? Money. Money. And then on the third day, when they are circumcised, why is it on the third day? Because this is when they are in the greatest possible pain, physically. And they're incapacitated. They can't fight. The two guys go in, kill all the guys. And the other ones come in and plunder the entire city. Now, Jacob's answer is not, why have you done such a thing? How could you have done such a horrible thing? His answer is, don't you understand that this is a big land, there's a lot of people out there, when they band together against me, I'm going to be completely destroyed. What have you done? What is their answer? Their answer is, notice, should he treat our sister as a harlot? This is a very revealing answer. Did he treat her as a harlot? Prostitute. What's a harlot? Prostitute. Did he treat her as a prostitute? No. Right? Why? Because if you're dealing with a prostitute, what are you supposed to do? You pay money. Right? And there is no rape. It's just a business deal. Right? He didn't. Why do they say that? But why do they say, should, should he treat our sister as a harlot? To give justification to their action, justification to their action yes. Pardon? But he did not treat her as a harlot. No, no. His father's response would be appropriate for any marital engagement of the time. There's nothing wrong, aside from the fact that the son raped the daughter. If, if, if this had not happened, and this man came and offered Jacob to, for his son to marry his daughter, there would be a bride price to pay. This is very, this is what, what 
this would be expected of, of a man making an offer to marry a daughter. No, he was not. No, not. no, no, no. The fact that he's hiding... When he raped his daughter, was he treating her as a harlot? No. She was not acting this way either. We cannot even say that. She's not acting as a harlot. He didn't treat her as a harlot. This is nothing more than an, a rape. When a man rapes a woman, he's not treating her as a harlot. I want to be very insistent on this because behind this expression, there is a justification which is inex- unacceptable. There is no acceptable excuse for raping a woman. There is none. Right? But when they ask that question, what they're doing now is taking the rape and turning it into an action that is going to dishonor them even further. It isn't about her, it's about them. The reason why they got so incensed wasn't out of love for their sister. It was out of um, concern for their own honor. In Turkey, about uh, three weeks ago, they have arrested, um, the police arrested a number of men in one village because they were tipped by somebody and they dug under a chicken coop and found a girl who has been buried in that spot. She's actually been buried alive by her own people, her father, her brother. And the reason why she was buried alive is because she, she dared to speak to other men. This is called an honor killing. This is very much alive today. So when one puts his own honor over and above the lives of others, you've essentially taken something which is right and true, honor, and turned it into a monstrosity. And at the end of Genesis, when we will read the blessings, quote-unquote, of Jacob on his sons, you will see that what Jacob speaks, when Jacob speaks about Levi and Simeon, there are no blessings there. They're curses. So this will not be forgotten. All right. Now, I want to take the rest of the time that we have and go back and ask you some questions. This is going to be very interactive. I want you to also be a little bit patient with me because some of my questions might seem either annoyingly trivial or even shocking. But there's a reason to why I'm asking those questions. So bear with me. Let's go back to the very beginning. Dina went out dressed to kill. Don't you love that expression? Do you know many guys who dress to kill? Do you? Do you? Do you know a lot of guys who dress, to, who are, would you see a guy and say, wow, he's dressed to kill? Maybe you do, I just want to know. Do you? Is that part of the English, is it an English expression that applies to guys? No. Right? Why? And when we say dress to kill, right, what is being killed? The soul. The soul. I want to qualify what I'm saying right now before I go any further. Suppose you have a guy who's, you know, not, he's not all together. There's a couple of screws missing up, up there. And he's parading downtown, holding in his hand a pile of cash, $50,000. He's walking with $50,000 in his hand, and he's standing like the Statue of Liberty and waving these $50,000 for all to see. 
Would you consider that to be a prudent behavior? Is that prudent? No. But is that a justification for somebody to come and rob him? Mumble, mumble. No, it isn't, right? Why am I saying that? I'm saying this because, guys, regardless of how a girl is dressed, at the end of the day, you are held responsible for the way you look at her, the way you think about her, and the way you act. No matter how a girl is and her behavior and her dress, that can never be justification and can never be an excuse for a guy to act inappropriately with her, much less to rape her. I want to be very clear. I want you to keep that in mind as you progress through. There is now, notice the chain of events. A girl and a guy, he rapes her. He goes to his father. His father agrees to lie on his behalf. They lie. Their lie is answered by another lie, a deceit. They now incriminate the entire town. The entire town now is involved in this whole thing. And it ends into a massacre of all the men, followed by a plunder and bringing into slavery women and children. What I have just described to you right now, what did I just describe? What I described to you is, is an event that can be seen at different levels. At a very fundamental, basic level, right now, moral level, we see a whole array of people acting wrongly. One sin precipitating a whole bunch of other sins. Right? At another layer, in an eschatological sense, the sense that has to do with the end times, what you see here is the book of Revelation. If you want the key to the book of Revelation, it is right here. God told Abraham very clearly, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. When you rape a woman, it is a curse that you are laying on her. Why? Because you're turning her into an object. You're reducing her to an object. You're saying you are not a woman, you are not a human being, you don't have right to dignity, you are a bag of popcorn. That is a curse. When a woman aboard her child, she is cursing him. She's telling this child, you are not a human being, you do not have dignity, you do not have right to exist, you are a bother to me. You're like a bag, like like a trash can, I'm going to empty you. That is a curse. Do you understand? Curses don't come simply or always with words. They come through our action. So, those who curse, I will what? Okay. Do you remember when Abimelech decided to take Sarah as his wife? Some chapters before. What happened to Abimelech in a dream? God came to him in a dream and told him, Do not touch this woman. She's that of others. If you touch this woman, you and all those who belong to you, all the city, 
will die. God warned him. And because of that warning, the city escaped God's wrath. What do you think happened here? Exactly. It is God's wrath. It is God's wrath. Do we see God's wrath this time? Do do we have a neon sign that says, blinking, okay, you're now going to witness God's wrath. Do we see it this time? We saw it before. We, we saw it loud and clear. We were told. Do, are we told this time? Why do you think we're not told this time? Because we're supposed to know. We've been seeing this over and over again. We're supposed to know by now. If our mind is functioning according to the covenant, we get to the point, even before you get go further, she went to the city, uh-oh, trouble. He looked at her, did the, uh-oh, that's it, it's over. Game's over. You know, trouble is coming. Then you are now having a biblical mind. You have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Now take that and apply it to your own time. No different. You understand then how God works with us throughout all of history. Doesn't matter if you were if there were Jews and and uh, and Perizzite or Hivite or Hittite or Catholic or Protestant. It doesn't matter. The covenant applies the, the same way equally to others. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of history. He is Lord of all nations. Therefore, His covenant applies to all nations equally, and no one will escape. His judgment. Just as he will refuse his blessings to no one should they come and ask for it. So, you see the pre-event. People acting in such ways as to break the covenant. Then you see the covenant break and you see God's wrath. All happening through people. That's the book of Revelation. The letters, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. The letters, God is warning His church. He speaks to them in words because they are supposed to be the ones who are made in the image of God because they have the seal of the Holy Spirit in their souls. Therefore, He speaks to them rationally. The seals... God speaks mutely to the world with physical signs for the world to hear. Why? Because they don't want to hear Him. You see, you have eyes and you do not see, He had told the Jews. You have ears and you do not hear. Well, I'm going to speak to you in a language that you can understand. Earthquakes and, uh, and physical manifestation, and economic trouble. All the stuff in which God, the language of God for, for the unbelievers... Those are the seals. The trumpets. God's wrath unleashed the first time with, to, off, to, to keep the possibility for those who want to repent, to repent. The last chance. And then the bowls of wrath when His wrath is consummated. Welcome to history. This is how history of humanity unfold throughout the ages. But now, I've told you about the negative... What happens after the bowl of wrath? 
What appears in heaven? What comes down from heaven? The heavenly Jerusalem comes down from heaven. What is the heavenly Jerusalem? The church. So what did God do? There is some culture, some country, some force, some empire who is an obstacle to the salvific action of the church in the world, to the ability of the church to go out and make disciples of the nation. The last command that Jesus gave, a command that will not be broken. Then, God gives warnings. God tells people, not going to keep on going like this. Because I died for my bride, and you're not going to continue persecuting her. I will allow her to be persecuted for the saints. I will allow her persecuted for a judgment. But not forever. Only for a time. And then your authority will be removed. And she will be able to go and evangelize. Just as I said so. Welcome to history. If you could see history the way Christ sees history. If you could see the church the way Christ sees the church. You will never ever live with anxiety. The Chinese proverb, may you live an interesting time, will never happen to you. Why? Because you will always live in blessed time. It's funny. People are afraid of the book of Revelation. That's because their memory goes as far as the bowl of wrath, and it stops right there. They forget what happens after. All right. But that's not what I really want to focus on. I want to focus on the moral level, on the personal level. I want to start by asking you a very simple question. What's wrong with the relationship between Dina and Shechem? What is wrong? In a very fundamental sense, what is wrong in this relationship? It could have been actually a beautiful relationship. That's a tragedy. Because he fell in love with her. Really fell in love with her. It could have been a beautiful relationship. What was wrong? It's not consensual. True. The order of things is messed up. Yes. It's outside the covenant. Yeah. Okay. What is the driving force of this relationship? Physical ah, lust. Not physical attraction, because you hope that in marriages, there is a driving force as part of physical attraction. Right? Lust. There is a saying, and I think it's true today more so than um, in maybe past times. Guys use emotion to get to sex. Gals use sex to get to emotions. Both of them are wrong. Because both of them are using each other. That is lust. Lust is the reduction of a person to an object for the purpose of satisfying the outward impulse of sex. That's what lust is. That's why Jesus is so adamant against lust, because the problem with lust is that it disfigures the image of the Trinity in us. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As, as John Paul II said, in its deepest mystery, the Trinity is not a solitude, but a family of love. And when God made us in His image, He made us to be a family of love. When we substitute lust for love, we turn 
those involved in two objects. Hence, we disfigure the image of God. We are effectively saying, this is how God looks. God is not a unity of love. God is a evil force bent on turning others into objects. And that is why, consistently in Scripture, um, idolatry, which is the worship of God, of false gods, or the false worship of God, has always be, was linked to um, um, infidelity and to lust. Because when one falls into lust, he's essentially disfiguring the image of God in him and in the other. That's why Jesus was so severe in his expressions. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better that you enter the kingdom of heaven made than you go to hell, to hell with all your members. He was using what we call, you know, um, he, he was essentially exaggerating just to make a really strong point. He didn't mean to physically do so, but his intent was, you, take, you need to take this very seriously. So, it was lust. Let me answer this question. Let's look at it from Shechem's point of view for a second. He's walking around. He sees this, this girl. He wants her. He takes her. What's wrong with that? I know it sounds a completely obvious question, but I just want you to think about it for a second. What's wrong with that? It's not his to take. He made an object of her. Pardon? No dignity. What's wrong with all of that? What, why, can't we what, why can't we just do that? It's like instincts and animals. Say it again. It's evil thoughts, okay? Fine. I agree. Why can't we act this way? There are standards of bad things without control. God put a conscience in it. But, okay, but those are your point of view. My point of view is different. Where I come from, whatever I want, I take. Your truth, my truth. What's wrong with that? Oh, but I'm very spiritual. I think a lot about myself. I'm very, very spiritual. And uh, what I just, just satisfied me, I'm, I'm happy. Why can't I just do that? Ah, there's one universal truth you can decide. Okay, we're, get, we're getting somewhere. Go ahead. Says who? I, I saw her, I took her. Nobody said no. Standards in the community. Yeah, there are standards for my community, but she's not part of my community. She's a nobody. Today, we have over 4 million people in slavery. They trade slavery in Carlsbad, by the way. Yes. Yes. So this is not about ancient times. Okay? I, I want to push my point a little bit more. Why can't I just act with, like this? I'm an image of God and everyone else is. So what you all seem to be indicating right now is that there is, there is a moral truth that, that is important to all humans no matter where they come from. Is that what we're saying? No? But this is not about Catholicism. This is just about, this is outside the realm of Catholicism for a second. This is about a guy sees a girl, he takes her. I'm asking, what's wrong with that? That's what separates us from animals. But do you agree, therefore, that just at that level, at the basic level of behavior, that we expect a certain level of of um, moral behavior across all of humanity, yes? I'm hearing you not saying to me, if you're from culture X, 
or if you're from religion Z, you're allowed to act this way. It's okay. Some cultures are okay with this. Could you give us an example? I, don't, I know of none, but it's possible that there are some which are okay with this. Should, should that be okay? Should we permit it? There, there are indeed in Africa certain, certain behavior towards young girls that I want to get into, which are the norm. And when we look at them, we consider them to be nothing more than uh, a uh, physical maiming and a, um, a real um, um, crime against the dignity of women. Right? So you all agree this is sort of unacceptable, right? It's just It's a truth that holds. It's unacceptable, right? Everybody is bound by this, yes? Huh. So therefore, there is one truth that governs all of us. Yeah? Now, I might subjectively not agree with it, but there is one truth that governs all of us. Indeed, this is the natural law. Not to be confused with the law of nature. This is the natural law, meaning it's the law that is natural. Parts of, part of our nature, which is inscribed in our heart. And it applies to all, right? Everybody would subscribe to this. Yes? Okay. So isn't that interesting, though, that we... I'm not debating... I'm not saying that all societies function this way. I'm saying in our mind, with our outlook today, we would expect, we would want everyone to agree to act this way. Yes? Okay. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, bear with me. I don't want to go there for a second. I'm, I, I want to link it to something else. Okay. If that is the case, where there is one truth, one behavior that we would consider to be morally upright and acceptable. Why is it so hard for us to understand that in heaven there could only be Catholics? Isn't it the same thing? If here on earth we're saying that a moral conduct, a proper conduct, is one and common and universal to all. If you respect a woman, you respect a woman. You give her her dignity. Yeah? And whether you are Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Buddhist, whatever, you ought to respect a woman and give her her dignity. Yes? Yeah. We know it's one truth. One moral truth that applies to all. We expect all to act this way. We'd like them to act this way. Why is it then, when it comes to heaven, where the truth is even clearer, where the truth unifies all even more so, we have a hard time in accepting only Catholics are up there. I want you to think about that for a second. Very good question. Why should one group, who's basically like every other group other than a name, go to have... Are we like every other group other than a name? That's the key. Are we? No. What's different? The covenant. What else? Yeah, the covenant. In what term? In what way? What way? What way? What way? Physically speaking, what way? What in the church? That's it. That's the heart of it. It's the Eucharist. No one else, other than Catholics and Orthodox, would claim that we are receiving the body and blood, soul and divinity of a God. To everybody else, it's insanity. No other religion, no other mythology, 
Nowhere else would you find a group eating their God. It's unique in the history of humanity. If you did studies of um, what we call in anthropology, the the parallel studies of, of myths, you will see that there are no other cultures who claim what we claim, which we accept so easily, but we don't realize the enormity of it and why so many outside are shocked and scandalized by it all. We eat our God. That's what we're doing. That's why we're not like everybody else. Therefore, this is our claim. If here on earth we're claiming that only if you eat this God, who by the way was crucified, you can go to heaven, then either we're completely right, we're absolutely right, or we're a bunch of lunatics. I'm just paraphrasing St. Paul. If Christ did not rise from the dead, right, then we are foolish. Our faith is for nothing. But if he indeed is risen from the dead, implying by this, this is who you're receiving, the risen Lord. We're not cannibals. Cannibals eat dead bodies. We're eating a living God. Pardon? What, what do you mean, what about taking him once a year? No, you, you're allowed. No, no, you, you are, according to the church, the requirement is for you to receive him once a year. If you receive the Lord once a year on Easter, you fulfilled your Catholic duty. You're required to come to Mass every Sunday, not receive communion every Sunday. Because the purpose of Mass is to give glory to God. It's your religious duty. Okay? Just as everybody expects you to work, to live, it's your duty to support yourself. You have a religious duty to give glory to God for what He has given you. And God doesn't require it of you every day. He requires it only of you once every seven days. That's the difference. But hold on. Now, what's preventing us from acting this way? Like He did? Conscience grace of God in us. Yeah, but what's preventing us from acting this way? Fear of wrath, God's wrath. So that's true, grace of God, that's true. What are those two statements are saying? Pardon? What do you mean by humanity? We are God's children. Okay. So, okay, let's just stick to, to, you know, we receive God, we're risen to spirit, absolutely true, God's grace, absolutely true. What are those statements implying? What are they implying? What's the implication? To be godlike, yes, but right. We're we're given the grace. Yes. To be like Him. Yes, yes, exactly. Through what? The church. The church. The church. Do you understand the implication of the presence of the church on this planet? If there was no church, if Jesus was to give us only the Bible, if he sat down and wrote a book, and he had written the perfect book, I mean, he did it in the scriptures, but let's say he wrote it with his own hands. Let's assume further that we could have still that same book, the original, that he miraculously preserved for us. And let's further assume that any one of us who would go there and look at it as it's written in Hebrew, let's say, we would be able to read it as if it's written in our own language. A miracle. 
nothing would be left on this planet but the book. Because we would have killed each other. Because scripture alone is not a vehicle of grace. If it was, he wouldn't be sitting in the little box behind me. Would he now? The church is the answer. The church is what is not present here. This was written with the specific intent to make pious Jews who are meditating on the Word look at this and say, what's missing here? What's missing? What is missing in here? Why the tragedy? Why the killing? Why all of this? Something is missing. My peace I give to you. That's what was missing. The peace that is internalized and turns into holiness is what's missing. Yeah? This is a picture what the world would look like without the church. There would be no human rights. There would be no children's rights. There would be no women's rights. There would be no soldiers, prisoners' rights. None of that existed. There'd be superstition covering all of us. More so than now. There'd be no illumination. There'd be no desire to peace. There'd be no turning your cheek to the other who, be, who, 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 uh, um, who slaps you on the, on the right to turn the left. No forgiveness. No, no nothing. It's the church that brings the light of heaven on this planet. Without the church, we would have killed each other long time ago. Because the vehicle of grace that he instituted in his own blood would not be around. That's why, logically, if you're a God, what would you do? You died on the cross. You're God. You died on the cross. So that you can make the graces of the cross available to all. Therefore, as a God, what would you do about that vehicle? Would you allow that vehicle to do anything but your own will? Would you allow the vehicle that you chose, the vehicle of grace, to do something different than what you intended to do? You're God, would you? No. Therefore, the church can never err in matters of morality and theology. Would you allow that vehicle of grace to disappear? You died for everyone, would you? No. Therefore, it will stay until the end of times. Make sense? Logical? All right. Would you allow people to be confused about how they get to you? Or how they be saved? Would you make it complicated for them? Here's a book. There are 33,000 Christian denominations. Let's not talk about the rest. Now, find your way to heaven. Good luck. There are 33,000 in the last count. There may be more now. Christian denominations. How do you get to heaven? You can't even read the book. And figure out which one of these will lead you to heaven. How do you get there? If you're God, would you make it that complicated? We make it complicated. But you're God, would you? No. You make it simple. You go to heaven, here's what you do. You get baptized. Then you receive me to sustain you, to protect you, to keep you, to make you grow in holiness, prepare you. Because heaven is completely different. When you fall, because you're going to fall, Here's a way for you to come back into my grace. And before you die, 
Here's a viaticum. This is what is going to strengthen you to cross that bridge. And I'll be on the other end. I haven't left you alone. You have lots of friends. First, my mom. You can trust her. She's been there with me from the beginning. Hold her hand. She'll bring you to me. Now I'm giving you an angel, a saint, a holy saint who's seen my face for 13 billion years. And even though you're 20 years old and he's 13 billion, he's going to stand by you every second of your life to make sure you have someone to help you. And I know how examples are important for you, so I'm going to raise saints. Study their life, ask them to help you, you can talk to them, and I will bring you to me. And then I'll bestow my graces on your family to make it possible for you to live in my peace. If you wanted a son to grow in a good family, won't you do the same? Son, here's your name. This is who you are. Here's your phone number. There's only one name, one phone number. Not 33,000 of them. One name, one phone number. Here's good, wholesome food that I'm giving you. Here's the rule. This is what you follow in this house. And these are good things I'm going to give you. Here's mommy, here's daddy. One mommy, one daddy. One of each and only one. And, oh, by the way, you have brothers and sisters. And look, you have, you got friends as well. Isn't that what you do? This is what he did. No different. Isn't that simple? No wonder you have holy men and women who never had an education, but through the rosary attained to a high level of theology called mystical theology. They see it all because at the end it's simple. We make it complicated. Why? Because we lust. Why? Because there's gluttony in us. Why? Because there's pride. Why? Because we are like Adam and Eve. I'm going to eat of that tree. I'm going to do my way and got nothing to do with it. I'm going to buy that Lamborghini and I want it my way. That's why. What is the Genesis, book of Genesis about? Look at the best among you. Here is the catalog of all the best. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac. They're the best. The best among all the people who lived without the grace of the Catholic Church. Look what happened. I'm going to show you. They can't do it. You can't either. Yeah. That's why I keep on telling you, if you want to know if you love Jesus, look at how you love His church. Look at how you love His church. Yeah? That's why we study Genesis. It's a portrait. It's open we see in it ourselves. We see in it the world without the gift of God. And if we keep on studying, we see eventually the face of Christ himself. God bless you. Questions? Yes. The question is, what, what, what do we have to say about all these people who are outside the Catholic Church who have been expanding in numbers and now are taking over Europe? What is our position? position is, uh, of the church, actually, is the following. In order to attain to salvation, you need baptism. If you're not baptized, then there are two other ways in which you could attain to salvation, and these are called baptism of desire or baptism by blood. I'm not going to go into the, the, the details of this. The bottom line is, if you don't have one of these three things, then the position of the church is that we do not see how you could be saved. 
Right? Now, our intent is not to put God in a box. God set up rules for us. God set up rules for His church. God is not bounded by any rules. He can do anything He wants. However, God will not contradict Himself, particularly the death of His Son on the cross. Therefore, our understanding is that these are necessary for salvation. It's a teaching of the church that without baptism, you can't be saved. Hence, those who are outside the church, who are not baptized, refuse Jesus, will not be saved. Will not be saved. I will explain it one more time this way, because I know this is something a lot of people struggle with, and has to do with the nature of the church. I'm going to explain it to you this way. Let's assume there is a person who is not a Catholic. And let's assume this person lived a good life. And let's assume further that when this person dies, let's just use an image for now, this person finds himself in front of the pearly gate. And there is Peter and Paul and James and John and Jude and our Lord himself, right by the gate, wanting this person to come in. Now, this person gets to the pearly gate, is about to step into heaven, and this person takes a peek and sees Our Lady enthroned and the angels and the saints saying the rosary. What is this person going to think? Would, would this person say, Yay, that's wonderful? No. Now, hang on to that no for a second. What is heaven? Isn't heaven where God is? Yes. And what is truth? Jesus Christ. I am the truth. Okay. Can the truth contradict itself? In other words, can the truth say, this is good, and the truth say, this is not good? Is that possible? Very good. Is there anything, is there anything else but what is good in heaven? No. All that is in heaven is good. If you see something in heaven, which now we know is good, and you do not accept it, what are you refusing? The good. Can you be in heaven? You see, heaven is not a meritorious system. You got an A+, you go to heaven. Heaven is not about how good we are. Heaven is about our union with Jesus Christ. And the love we have for Him. Yes? That's what heaven is all about. If you have a son and he refuses to be in your house and to look at you as his mother, he doesn't want that. And he's good and wonderful and kind and all this stuff. And let's say you are the wife of Noah. What's going to happen to that son? Yes. Bingo. That's the truth that we live in. The reason why we are not being told this truth is because it is a hard truth and is a truth that requires us to become what? Evangelizers. Holy. Holy so we can save others. Exactly. Exactly. It's a truth that requires us to work hard for the salvation of others. Yeah? That's the truth. This is the Catholic Church. You understand? It's hard to accept. Yes. So here's what I want you to do. Jesus spoke to the, woman of the Samaritan woman at the well. She asked him, We say we worship on Mount Gerizim, because they're Samaritans. When the break happened between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, 
the kingdom of Israel up north decided we're not going to go down to Judah, to, to Jerusalem and worship God there. Even though he told us you're going to have one temple. Notice in the Old Testament, you had one temple in Jerusalem. You want to worship God? You go to the temple. You can't have your own temple. Translate that in current times. You want to worship God? You go to the Catholic Church. You can't have your own church. Same thing. Graced. Not lucky. Luck has nothing to do with it. Grace. So she said, well, we worship in Mount Gerizim because they had the temple up there. You worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? She, he answers to her. He doesn't say, well, you know, you're such a good woman and you're so, your heart is, is, is set on worship God. And among you, there are so many who are good. And <clears throat> He said, notice how blunt he was. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. What is worship what you do not know? How do you say that differently? It's a word that starts with the letter I. Idolatry. To worship the true God without knowing who He is, is idolatry. So yeah, lots of people out there worship the true God without knowing who He is. It's idolatry. You understand? So here's what you do. Take this. I know how hard it is. It's hard for a lot of people. right? Take this and take something else with it. Take those two things in prayer. And spend this Lent on these two prayers. This is the first one. How could it be that people outside the church will not be saved? Take that to Our Lady in prayer. And the thing I want you to take in prayer, which is going to be even more important personal to you and to everyone, is the following. By the grace of God, you make it into heaven. Fifty years go by. And a member of your family is not there. A hundred years go by, he's still not there. And he's not in purgatory. Is that going to be heaven for you? I want you to think about the dearest person in your family when you ask that question. How could that be heaven? You see, we know so little about the nature of the church and the nature of heaven. Take those two in prayer. Let God, through the rosary, enlighten your mind on the true nature of the church. Because only when you understand the church, what the church is, and how beautiful she is in His, mind, in his, in his presence, how holy she is, will you have peace of mind. Okay? Yes? Very good question. First of all, we don't speak of chance. We don't even speak of opportunity. <laughs> not, not, not a, I'm not criticizing you. Right? I'm just... Explaining, right? Because I know how much these days our own language has been influenced by the world. So we don't say we're lucky. In fact, if you say to somebody, good luck, you know what you're doing? That's going to shock you. But you know what you're doing? You're cursing him. Absolutely, seriously. Because what you're basically saying to this person, don't count on God's providence. Count on chance. In the spiritual world, there is no such thing as chance. There is God's providence, and there's the influence of the devil. There's the only two things there are out there. That's why we say, if you really truly wish something good for someone, you say, God bless you. Or, if he's trying to do something, I will keep you in my prayers. Let's go back to your question. In the book of Isaiah, 
God admonishes Isaiah and he tells him, stand by the gate, stand by the wall. And if you see the enemy coming and you do not warn the others, the life of others will be required of you. But if you warn them and they don't listen to you, it wouldn't be required of you. What is the implication here? If he doesn't stand and warn, what's going to happen to to these guys? They're gone. Yeah? So, yes, God, St. Thomas tells us, give everyone opportunities for salvation. Those opportunities come through other people. Because God respects the free will of all, they may not have come to them. Because the one who was supposed to be there for them decided not to be there. You understand? So every little action you take today, every good work you speak to somebody, can have ripple effects throughout of history. Because God placed you there. Specifically for that moment to be that agent of salvation for this person. One habit we have now in my household as we're driving, and I've explained this to my kids, so it's automatic now. We're being talking or saying or listening or whatever in the car, and we see an ambulance. As soon as we see the ambulance, everything stops, and we say three Hail Marys, one Glory Be for that person in this ambulance. And we believe that the reason why we're there and we see this ambulance is because we are are to pray for this person. This person needs our prayer right now. God expects that from us. We're doing our duty, nothing else. Once you start to see your life as a gift to others, that God is going to use you to save others, your entire behavior changes. And the best way you save others, by the way, the most powerful way, is on your knees. Is your prayers, your sacrifices, your fasting. That's how you save others. You don't have to speak. You don't have to go out and evangelize and then do all that. You can be on your knees and praying. God would use your prayers to send somebody else to do something. It's the greatest prayer. Is the best and most efficient and most powerful form of delegation. Yes. Remember one thing. I understand your question. But remember one thing. The problem, the fault that we have in all these questions is what I call the principle of entitlement. We're functioning under the impression that God owes us heaven. That if God doesn't give us heaven, God is unjust. That's the problem. God owes us nothing. We don't understand sin. We do not understand the gravity of that sin committed by Adam and Eve. If we understood it, if we saw it for what it was, we would say to God, you are holy and just, O God, to send all of us in hell. And we would be absolutely convinced of it without a shred of doubt. Do you understand? You must work on that because what you have right now, what you're facing, is false compassion. It is pure human compassion which is not rooted in the death of Jesus on the cross. Everything must proceed from that. You really think you and I can love these kids more than he loves them? Yet, still, people go to hell. How could that be? Ah, 
we must absolutely pray and ask God to love others as He loves them. Yeah? Now, here's one hopeful thing. Again, the baptism of desire. Church teaches that someone who, through invincible ignorance, that would be your case, is unable to, to um, receive the Word of God, to hear about Jesus, and yet who fulfills the commandments. So let's take one of those kids who's a good kid who lives, as far as he is concerned, by the law of God. That kid can still attain to salvation. By this we mean that the moment of death, Jesus Christ, through His own mercy, can reveal to him all the truth of the Catholic Church. And this kid would say, that's what I want. But, let's keep that in mind, that's not the majority of the cases. Yeah? Yes. Very good. The first question then, when Dismas on the cross witnessed for Jesus and defended him, it is not clear he didn't know anything about him. We can't necessarily assume he didn't know anything about him. It is possible he knew, he knew who he was. Something in him provoked him to think this is an innocent man. He had done nothing wrong and he witnessed for him. Right? When we die, we do not know all the truth of the Catholic Church. There is one fundamental reason for it and it's in the creed. In the creed, what do we say? After we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. We, we what? Believe. We believe in the Catholic Church. Why do we say we believe? Why don't we say we know? What does belief entail? It entails something about faith. We are required to have faith in the Catholic Church. Therefore, there is an aspect of the Church that will always be a mystery, that cannot be known. Yeah? Hence, when we die, we do not know all the truths of the Catholic Church, nor is that required. All that is required is for us to assent to all the teachings of the Church. No matter what they are, if the Church teaches them, I'll do, I'll do accordingly, whether I believe or not, whether I, I agree or not, whether I understand or not. I assent to those truths. And their understanding might come in time. You understand? No, no. You, what, what, right, but as you, as you are on earth, your duty, you are due, your duty is to study the teachings of the church. You're all duty-bound to study the teachings of the church. If you don't know them and you die today, God have mercy on your souls. You're duty-bound to know the teachings of the church. It's a duty. It's not optional. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I was too busy. I was playing poker every Saturday with my friends. You know, poker is really important. All right? But let's assume somebody dies, a child, baptized. He doesn't have any chance. When he faces the Lord, he still doesn't know all the things of the church, but he ascends to them because he sees truth. And he loves the Lord. And whatever the Lord says, he says yes. Where do we have the example? Our Lady. When Our Lady said yes to Gabriel, she didn't know the truth of all the, 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 all the truth of the Catholic Church. Right? But she said, Behold, the slave of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. And that's what's sufficient for her. The centurion, you don't need to come to see me. Whatever you say will happen. That's the faith of the church. Yeah? Okay. The second question is about this day. Right? Remember, Sunday began um, effectively, in, in essence, as soon as the Lord died, right, victory was effected. 
So it, on that moment, on that very moment, heaven was open. From that moment on, the fact that he went to... It, what happened, him going to hell, hell, not purgatory, actually hell. There was no purgatory at that point. Purgatory came once he died. right? Once he went to hell, that is outside time. So it's not like, oh, you know, from 10.30 to, to 11, he was in hell. And 11 o'clock, he went... That's completely outside of time. Therefore, the day is the day of the Lord. The day of His coming. That's the new day. Right? It's not day in time. He really indicated, he wanted to indicate not the day as in the temporal, but the, Im- the immediate action. As soon as this is completed, you're in, you're in heaven. And that's why, for instance, for us, when we die, it's the day. Right? So, on the moment of our death, as soon as we're dead, right, the very first thing that happens, we face our personal judgment. And then it's hell, heaven, or purgatory that day. That's what is meant. Three days? No, the church never came up with three days in hell. Yeah, 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 but that's from the moment of his passion. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, you count three days from the moment, the three days involve the day where he was crucified. Remember, back then, uh, it counted from sun, uh, sunrise to sunset, one day. The second day, right, when he was in, in a tomb, the third day he rose. He didn't spend three days in the tomb. He rose on the third day. Yeah? That's what was meant. Yes? Ramsey? Yes. Well, no, he didn't say he will be in... Yes. Yeah, Jonah was in the belly of the, of the whale for three days and three nights. When he meant by the sign of Jonah, he meant really nothing about the resurrection. You see, the sign of Jonah, okay, you, you know what Ramsey is talking about, right? They, they come to him and they're asking for signs. And he says, a, uh, an evil and corrupt generation asks for signs. Look the context. They're evil and corrupt. I think he said corrupt. Evil and something. I think it's corrupt. Generation asks for a sign. And the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. Since they're evil and corrupt, you think he's giving them a good sign? Is he, is he trying? So, you're evil and corrupt, and because you're evil and corrupt, I'm going to give you the beautiful sign of the resurrection. Is that what he has in mind? No. What was the sign of Jonah? Remember, the sign of Jonah was the sign that Jonah gave to his contemporary. What was it? No, no. Jonah was sent where? Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh is the, king, is the capital of which kingdom? Assyrians. Thank you. Assyrians. Right? Assyrians. Before he was sent, where, where, where was he from? Jonah. No. Precisely not. No, 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 no. Jonah was from up north. The kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel. Who came before him? Isaiah and Amos. Right? And a bunch of other prophets. What were they prophesying about? They went to the kingdom of Israel and told them, look, God has no issue with you that you split away from this corrupt political kingdom down there. You can do that. But he has issue with you because you are not worshipping in Jerusalem. You split from his temple, you erected your own temple, and you're becoming pagans. God is telling you, come back, repent. First wave of prophets, come back and repent. Second wave of prophets is, forget it. You're not repenting. God is done with it. Prepare. It's going to come. It's going to hit you. And then the Assyrian kingdom is mentioned. And then 
God comes to Jonah and says, okay, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach in Nineveh. 40 days, or else God will destroy Nineveh. Why? Because Nineveh was so wicked. So put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a second. And do 2 plus 2 equal 4. Okay, let me think now. You're telling me, now I'm the only one who knows something that you don't know, that anybody else knows. Just you, God, you and me. Okay, you're telling me they're corrupt. That's good news. As far as I'm concerned. You're telling me you're going to destroy them in 40 days. That's very good news. Why? Is it a destroyed what happened to me and my people? Nothing. Yeah? Okay. And now you want to send me to them to warn them. And knowing you, God, as soon as I warn them as your prophet, you're going to pour your graces upon them and they're going to repent and be saved and come and destroy us. Okay. So what does he do? He goes to Spain. Literally. I mean, there's debate over whether Tarshish is Spain or somewhere far, but essentially, he goes to Spain. He hops on a boat, goes to Spain. Right? And God says, uh-uh. Right? And he says, okay, you guys, it's me, it's me. Throw me off board, and you're exactly what happens. They throw him off board. The whale swallows him. God is saying, I want you to stew on this for a little bit. And then spits him back out on shore. And according to beautiful tradition, apparently, where the whale spit him up is in Sidon, on the shores of Sidon. Off of Sidon. And then from there, he drudged up his way to Nineveh, and he was supposed to preach for three days. He preaches for one day. And I'm sure he was going like this. Repent. Repent, or God is God. Right? And the king heard him, and on the spot, he orders a fast for the whole town. Everybody. The cows, the pigs, the dogs, everybody. And God relents from his punishment. That's why at the end of the book of Jonah, he's sitting outside the city and he's sulking. He's not happy. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Right? He's, he's sulking. And God said, what's your problem? See? And then, that's the sign. He goes... Pardon? There was no real emphasis. Right? When, when Jesus speaks of this, he doesn't speak of the three days and three nights. Just as Jonah was in the belly, three days and, yeah, three days and so shall the Son of Man be, right? right? Yes. But the point he was making to them is the following. Once Jesus rose from the dead, what happened? Who was the evil empire at the time? The Romans. They were much worse than the Assyrians. The Jews were praying for the destruction of Rome. Instead, what happens? Peter and Paul go to Rome, they're both spill their blood in Rome, and what happens in 70 AD? The Romans come down and destroy Jerusalem. That's the sign of Jonah. That's the sign he was given this wicked and corrupt generation. Okay? Your question being, yeah, yes. No, there is the effect of original sin, but there's no, no sin. No, but it's washed away, right? No, no, no. Sin, original sin is washed away. But the effect of original sin stay. So, for instance, concupiscence is still there. The disorder of the passion and the reason and the will are, is still there. Right? And that explains why if you look at a little kid who's had one lollipop, he's ready to have 12 other lollipops. There's no control of oh, so reason. The effect of sin is not washed No. Sin, original sin is taken away, but the effect are still there. And that's why you need 
this constant training, you need the virtues, you need the reception of the Holy uh, Eucharist frequently to help you ward away those effects and then move on to holiness. Yeah. So here's, here's what Father John was saying. If for the, how many of you were not there? Okay. He, Father John was talking about healing, healing the family tree. The idea is many of us may suffer from the sins of our parents. Right? And this is part of the covenant. He didn't mention it explicitly, but that what makes the whole thing, the engine of the whole thing is the covenant. If you live by my covenant, I'll bless you. If you don't live by my covenant, I'll curse you. Right? And you and all those who are with you, because they are connected to you. Right? That's how it works. This is, and, and God would say, I will, those who, um, those who um, uh, live by my covenant, I will bless. And because of their fidelity to my covenant, I will bless their descendants to the thousand generation, meaning infinitely, in, 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 constantly. But if they don't, I will curse them down to the fourth generation. Right? That means that the effect of sin are, are perpetuated throughout the family. Hmm? Hence, the family is in need of healing. What Father John was talking about is this. When you as an individual, let's say you came from a family who were not living according to God's will. So you're suffering from the sins of your parents or grandparents or what have you. However, you as an individual has now the freedom to say, I want to take God as my family. I want to change my ancestry. God will be my family from now on. Hence, all those effects are, are, are taken away. They stop affecting you and your descendants because you have now joined the family of God. You are now attached to the family of God. Because of that, you can now call on the power of Jesus, on, his, on the sacrifice that he has offered, which is greater than all the sins of humanity put together. And you say, Lord, wash away those effects coming down through the generations. Wash them between every generation and break this bondage that has held me and my family into uh, the effects of those sins. Take them away. Since the, 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 it, when you do that, if they're dead, right? If they, you're, you're not necessarily able to change their fate when you pray this prayer. But what you're, what you're able to do by calling on the blood of Jesus is to say, let your redemptive power apply and take and break those connections because now I belong to you. I don't belong to, to them anymore. That's what he was talking about. I think this is very profound and very true. In fact, it's all part of the purification we have to all undergo. And in fact, in the life of St. Francis, God showed it very, very clearly. Because St. Francis, when his father, when they were making all this criticism against him, what did he do? He disrobed completely. He went naked. He gave them back everything because he did not belong to them anymore. He belonged to God. He changed his ancestry. He is now part of the family of God. And what Father John has said and repeated oftentimes is that we have to be aware that the sins of others affect us. And our sins affect others. This is the covenant. More, over and over we see it in scripture. The covenant, the way we live it, affects others. And therefore, once we are aware of this, we have the power through the blood of Jesus to invoke healing upon the whole tree so that we are not affected by it anymore. And if there are family members of ours that are still alive, we can pray for them. We can intercede for them. So the same might happen to them. And if some of our family members are in purgatory, then we can pray for them. They can be also to, be, to, be, to, to essentially to shorten their time in purgatory. 
right? Out of, of the mercy, we have to think about them, right? And we have to offer prayers of, of um, sacrifices of, um, uh, um, that come from the sorrow that our action and action of our family offended God. This is what Daniel did when he was in, in Babylon. He knelt and prayed and said, O Lord our God, we have sinned against you. He may not have sinned against him. He was maybe sinless. But he said, we, not they, and I'm stuck with them. We have sinned against you. And he meant it. He was sorry that his people offended God. And God sent St. Gabriel to him to give him the truth. We have to do the same thing. We have to take ownership of our own sins and the sins of our community. Before God to say, we're sorry that we offended you, Lord. I think that's the, the, the gist of his message. And I think it's very powerful. And it's needed. Yes. That's very important because you can ask the same question you're asking about the blind man. When I saw this blind man, the disciples asked, Peter asked, is he blind because of his own sins or the sins of his parents? He understood that there are two types of sins. Sins you inherit, the effect, sorry, you don't inherit the sins. The sins of the parents are not yours. Okay? It's their sins. You inherit the effect. You're, you are affected by their sins. Or is, it, is he blind because of his own sins? Okay? So scientifically, you could say, is he blind because there's a genetic defect? Or is he blind because he washed his eyes in, I don't know, something? Acid or something. I don't even go there, right? Anyhow, right? That's the question. And in this case, our Lord said, neither. He is not blind as effect of the sins of his parents, nor is he blind because of his own uh, irresponsible action or sinful action. He said he is blind because his blindness will give glory to God. What was he establishing on a firm foundation? He's establishing on a firm foundation the principle of redemptive suffering. So St. Rafa, for instance, she did not suffer all that she suffered because of her own sins. St. Bernadette Subiru, St. Padre Pio, those saints were not suffering because of their sins. It is redemptive suffering. And that blind man was participating in a mysterious way in the suffering of Jesus. Okay, very good. So when we pray, and Father John didn't really have time to touch upon this, that's what we say all the time. When we pray, the first thing we need to do is, Lord, what should I pray for? Everybody who went to Jesus, Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Therefore, know what you pray for. If you have a brother, a sister, a father, a mother, a family member, somebody you know who's sick, the... Autopilot response is, Lord, heal him. But what if the Lord heal, hears your prayer, heals him, and this guy goes drunk and have an accident and goes to hell? What did you do? Therefore, the very first thing is, Lord, what should I pray for? Or, Lord, if this illness is not to his spiritual advantage, take it away. Now you're talking the language of God. Now you're, being, you're praying the way he wants us to pray. You're having the ultimate end of this person in your mind. Therefore, you love that person more than you love your affection for that person. You're willing to lose this person on earth temporarily so that you can find this person in heaven forever. That's how God loves. Purifying our intention. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That's a good question. Father John did say that we should name these um, children. I don't have a clear answer for you. Uh, I don't understand why we need to name those children. But he seems to be indicating that there is a positive effect on that. That it's, it is for their healing, for their purpose. Uh, it, it seems that it's both. It seems that it's for the healing of the infant and for the parent. 
right? It seems, it, yeah, he, did, he gives that anecdote. I, uh, th- this is essentially speculative theology. It's not bad theology. St. Thomas Aquinas mo- did mostly speculative, meaning advancing our understanding of the way God deal, deal with us. And I don't have much to say in that area. I don't know why. It's something that I'm thinking about. Any thoughts? But I don't know what that means. I know he said it's, they're wandering. I don't understand what wandering, where are they wandering around? There is no place to wander. And I know so far that they're not in heaven. Hence, what does that really mean? Is it that it adds accidental uh, glory to them in a natural sense? Because if we assume that aborted baby don't go to heaven, which is the current position of the church, they will live in a state of natural beatitude. How is giving them a name add or, take, or not giving them take away? It's a question for which I don't have an answer. No, that's not true. They cannot be wherever they are. Because if they are in heaven, they have plenitude of happiness. No, no, no wait, wait, bear with me. They, they, if you are in heaven, you don't need anybody to name you. You, have, you are fully happy to the maximum capacity. They cannot be in purgatory. But that, hence my point. It's speculative theology. We know very little about this area. We have nothing. I have nothing that I can go by based on the teachings of the church to be able to tell you what he meant, all I'm trying to say. Just give them a name, uh, uh, how you would name a kid. The problem with all of this, the difficulty, the fundamental difficulty is how do you relate a name that a parent gives to happiness and limbo? There is no fundamental basis. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not criticizing Father John. You ask me what did he meant. All I'm trying to tell you is I have nothing I can base myself on to give you any satisfying answer. It's interesting. I am pondering this. I'm wondering about it. But I have no answer. That's all I'm trying to say. The fundamental reason is that she wanted some fun. That's the fundamental... No. I meant touch upon the entire process in the moral sense. Why did she do that? She wanted to entice men. Right? Which is falling into the... Well, the usual trait that women of the world do, which is, let me use my charms to attract, to, to, to attract men sexually so he may give me the emotional attention that I'm craving. No, no, she didn't go to see women as I go to visit a group of women praying the rosary. She went to see the women of the land. The implication behind that expression is, they're going out on a night. Going out to the bar, it's, it's, you have to understand the context of the expression. If it was, she went to see a group of women to knit, that's it. That's the claim of the Catholic Church. This is why we say, either we're absolutely true, this is truth, or we're insane. There's nothing in between. And that's why you hear me insisting. So I hear people say, well, you know, all you need is to love Jesus. You go to heaven, you love Jesus. Or to know Jesus, even better. All you need to do is know Jesus and you go to heaven. Let me tell you something. There's a guy who knows Jesus very, very well. And he's in hell. His name is the devil. What does that mean to know Jesus? What do you mean to know? You need to know the truth. Without, what does it mean to know the truth? It is as Adam knew his wife. You know it in your flesh. You live it. You live by it. You commit your life to it. You die for it. Well, what does that mean? You better die for only one truth. And there better be not two of them, because we're in trouble. Yeah? You understand? Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, the problem with that statement, you need to have their name written in the book of life, is that God has a name for each one of us. God is not waiting, I mean, God is not dependent on us to name a child. You understand? Nowhere in all of scripture have I seen this problem occur, where a child was rejected by God because he, had, he was not named properly by the parents. In fact, if anything, scriptures attest to the point I'm making to you. We're just seeing it right now. What did the parent of Jacob name Jacob? Jacob. Right? What did God have in mind for him from all eternity? His real name, Israel. Right? What about Abram? He was called Abram. His real name was? God did not know his parents to give him a name. He had already a name for him from all eternity. Yeah? So that's what I'm telling you. I don't... All I'm saying right now, I'm not, I'm not saying Father John is wrong. Far from it. I'm, I'm really interested by what he said. It really opens a window. But I don't understand the mechanics of it, therefore I can't explain it. Yes. No. Not that I know of. The only thing I can tell you is what Fatty was alluding to earlier. And that is, if you don't name a child, you're essentially considering him not worthy of having a name. He's not a person in your mind. And maybe because of that, in the relationship of parents to children, that somehow this is affecting him. Right? But how, to what degree, and why? I, I got no clue. And why is it that, let's say, you have a, a, a child who is, let's say, take a child who is, uh, um, there's a miscarriage, but it's in a Catholic family. Right? Because it's in a Catholic family, the, ch- the, the child is effectively baptized. Because the, if the intention of the parents were to baptize the child, even if they didn't think of it, explicitly, but the, the habitual things to baptize, the child, therefore he goes to heaven. Are we now saying there's a child in heaven going around saying, what's my name? Did he mean only those who are miscarried outside of the Catholic faith? I mean, I, I don't... It was too short. We don't have time to dwell on, those top, on these topics. Yes. 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 I think that maybe the... the uh, the, whole, the whole purpose of the study is simply to say that there is this very strong connection, and we don't know if they're, if they're imagining that they're seeing them, they're hallucinating, or what. I don't, it's a dream. I don't know. So, I, I can't tell you. I, all I can say is Father Padre Pio, right? He was the, 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 the exception in the whole rule, because one day he, he would usually say, in my Mass, there are more people from Virgatory than are people in the church. Right? He would see all the people from Virgatory coming to see him all the time. Yeah, so, I never understood that either. That was a special grace that God gave him to minister for those who are, who, who, who are dead. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas says, it is more meritorious to pray for the dead than to pray for the living. More meritorious. Yani, there is more value in your prayer if you pray for the dead than for the living. Yeah. So, again, these are areas... Look, I am not in the ministry of healing. I was very, very happy and glad to be here. I loved the, the talk of Father John, and I thought that he had a lot to offer. And he opened up certain areas where I don't have any knowledge. Just as I read the book of Father Amorth on the exorcism, and he talked about stuff that I, I got no clue. It's outside of my level of understanding, and there are certain things I may be able to understand a little bit better, but if I don't have any basis to go by... Um, And then you tell us. You email him and you tell us. (laughs) All right. God bless you.
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.